I have to warn you guys. My notes today ended up somehow being twice as long as they usually are. Now you see you're nervous. You're like, what? Are you I'm already hungry. And it hasn't even started. That's okay. I'm, I'm praying that God will, will guide me. I usually leave out half of it anyway because I forget. So it's going to be okay. I just saw an issue that morning up front. Now I want to tell you a little bit about Peter. We've talked a lot about Jesus over the last couple of weeks because it's been Easter. We haven't talked about Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. You may be kind of familiar with him. He was the loudest disciple. He was the disciple that was the first to volunteer. He was the one who said everything the most extremely. So when Jesus first encountered him, he was fishing. That was his job. He was a fisherman. And Jesus called out to him and said, follow me like he did to everybody. And he did. He followed Jesus. He was the one. Do you remember the story about it was a stormy ocean and Jesus is walking on the water? And one of the disciples gets out of the boat and tries to walk on water too? Can you imagine? I mean, I can understand seeing Jesus walk on water. But to have the confidence to think, well, I'll try it. That was Peter. And he did. He actually took a few steps on water. And then he sank. Which is kind of like Peter's life. That's how he, that's how he operates. Before the crucifixion, during the Last Supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. In an act of extreme humility, unexpected humility. Peter was the one who, when Jesus came to wash his feet, he said, No, get away. You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus explained, Peter, if I don't wash you, you'll never be clean. So Peter, being extreme, jumps all the way from that to, Okay, then wash everything. Pour it over my head. Wash everything. This is who Peter was. This is the kind of man we're talking about. When Jesus told his disciples, Guys, the time is coming. I'm going to have to be put to death. And Peter's like, no, never. It'll never happen. And Jesus is like, Peter, it's got to happen. Just calm down. And then he says, not only am I going to have to be put to death, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter's like, never. It's not me. It's not me. And Jesus must, all the time with Peter must just be... Just sighing. It's like, Peter, you don't even know. Just calm down. Because Jesus knew that Peter would betray him. Peter wasn't the one that he was talking about in that instance. But Jesus knew that Peter would deny him three times. Remember, he told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter, of course, probably just couldn't imagine that because he was so extreme in his devotion to Jesus. But then the trial came. They had taken Jesus. And they were beating him. And they were, they were sentencing him to death. And Peter's out in the courtyard where the trial's taking place. And a little girl says, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And he's like, I never knew the guy. No. I don't know him. Two other instances, he denies it. He even swears in one of those instances. He says, I swear I don't know the man. This is how Peter has finished up before this text that we just read. He was the loudest, most extreme of the disciples in his affection for Jesus. And now, he's a complete failure. He blew it. Peter's a kind of, he just blew it in every way that he could. And so he's back fishing. He's back to his old profession, a failure and a fisherman. No longer this proud, boastful, zealous guy that he once was. So, that's where we're at at this passage that we read. 
He's out fishing and Jesus appears on the beach. This is how he operated after the resurrection. He would just sort of appear places. And he appeared on the beach and he called out to them. They weren't having any luck out there fishing. You can read it when you go home earlier in this chapter. They weren't having any luck. And Jesus yells out to them. They don't know it's Jesus yet. He yells out to them, why don't you toss the net on the other side? They didn't fish back then with a rod and reel like you might be picturing. They fished with big nets. They would toss the net in and hope to bring in fish. They had the net over on one side of the boat. Jesus says, toss it to the other side of the boat and you'll catch a bunch of fish. And they're like, okay. And they try it and they get so many fish they can't even haul it in. And that's when somebody recognizes, that's Jesus. And Peter, you know, he's Peter. So he just jumps right in the water. It's like in Forrest Gump. You remember in Forrest Gump when he sees Lieutenant Dan on the pier? And he, he's the only one on the boat, but he jumps off the boat and swims ashore and just forgets his boat's just going without. I really like Forrest Gump. Some of you act like you haven't seen it. You need to go check it out. So he jumps, and I picture him jumping out of this boat and swimming to shore, and the other disciples just kind of looking at him, because then they just rowed ashore. They're like 100 yards out. I don't know for sure, but I picture them getting to shore before Peter does, and getting out and just looking at him, swimming in, and thinking, this guy, such a doofus. I don't know if that happened or not. I just, it's funny to me to picture it that way. So knowing all that context, let me just read the first part of the passage to you again. So when they, oh, and one more little bit. When they get to shore, Jesus has fixed them breakfast. He's cooked them breakfast. How bizarre is that? The resurrected Lord has cooked them breakfast. It's such a weird thing to do, but it's, the, it's a Jesus sort of thing to do. Even after his resurrection, he's serving them. He's, he fixed them breakfast. So this is where we pick up. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, let's talk about Greek for a second. And I know you guys get excited when we start talking about Greek. That's an exciting subject. We're not going to dig too deep here. But there's two. In English, we have one word for love. Love. But in the original language of the Bible, they had several different words to express different types of love. We use the same word for love that I use for like a taco. I say, I love tacos. Then I would use when I talk about my wife or my children. I love them. So how do you know what kind of love you're talking about? They had different words for different types of love. When Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? He used, he's using a word that comes from the word agape. He's using the Greek word that's like the highest kind of love. The most intense sort of love. The fullest sort of love. It's the word that they use for the love that God has for us. The type of love we should have for Him with all of our heart, our mind, our soul. That's the word He's using. That's the question He's asking. Do you love me? Like really, really, biggest kind of love, love me. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. That's the Greek word that Peter uses. He doesn't use the agape word. He uses the word for a brotherly love. That's where Philadelphia comes from. Phileo. It's like a brotherly love. He can't say, look Jesus in the eye and say, 
like he used to. He was so extreme. He would have said, I agape you. But he can't say that. He's just failed. He's just denied him three times. And so he says, you know, you know that I have this love for you. You know that I'm affectionate toward you. It's the difference between like the love that you have for your dog versus the love that you have for your spouse. Or the love that you have for your friend versus the love that you have for your savior. That's the kind of love that Peter responds with. He says, you know that I, you know, that I have, I like you. The second time Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you truly agape love me? And he says, Lord, you know that I, I, I kind of love you. You know, he's, he's not this making a stand, assertive, proud, extreme Peter anymore. He can't bring himself to say it. And then the third time, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he uses the phileo word. The third time, Jesus says, basically, do you even love me like that? Do you even love me with the, the affection of a brother? If you don't love me like agape love me, do you even like me? Do you even have affection for me? And this time it says, Peter was hurt. Peter was hurt. Of course Peter was hurt. He said, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. He couldn't appeal to what he's done. He couldn't say, Lord, you've seen how I followed you and how I did everything. All he said was, Lord, you know my heart, and you know that I do love you. Even though I'm complete and utter failure, you know that I do love you. All his bold proclamations have melted away at this point. He's a broken, humbled man. And I just picture him, they're walking, you know, they finish breakfast, and everybody's just like, this is Jesus who's cooked this breakfast, and Jesus says, Peter, let's take a walk. And it's in the morning, they're walking on the beach, and before Jesus has said anything, Peter's heart must have just been pounding in his chest. I'm sure his head was probably just hanging low. He wasn't going to bring up anything, he wasn't going to start off the, the conversation. His eyes are probably all teary. And he's walking with his Savior, the man that he followed for three years, that he professed undying love for, that he just betrayed and failed by denying him three times. And Jesus hits him with these questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And with each question, it's like he's ratcheting down further and further on the fact, on the harsh reality of the fact that Peter didn't love Jesus when he denied him three times. That Peter couldn't stand behind all these claims of being like the most devoted, most excited follower. He had failed. It's like Jesus is just trying to to just clear away all the confusion and just make it absolutely clear that Peter had failed. He had failed to love Jesus. He was stripped of all his boasting. He was just a failure and a fisherman now. The Bible simply says that he was grieved. And now that he was broken and humbled, Now that he knew he was a man who did not deserve Jesus' love or acceptance, now he was ready. That's why each time he asks, do you love me? He follows it with, tend my sheep. Now he's ready. He wasn't ready when he was this proud, boastful Peter. Now that he's broken, humble Peter, he's ready. So I'm here to ask you, and to ask myself, Do you love Jesus? 
Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Because we have to get this sorted out first. This is where we have to start. We've been really pouring into ourselves here this, this first year as far as our teaching goes. You know, I started with this foundational identity series. And then we started with studying the first chapters of Genesis. Just got to build this foundational knowledge of everything. And we've been kind of been pouring in knowledge about who is God, who are we, figuring this thing out. And now I really feel like it's time for us to kind of take the focus off of ourselves a little bit and start looking out. And start being obedient to Christ out in the world. But we have to sort this out first. Do you love Jesus? Until you're sure of this, you can't really do his work out in the world. Or even here in the church. Some of you are thinking, well, I've attended church my whole life. Clearly I love Jesus. Well, there's a major difference, as I've spoken on before, between religion and love for Jesus. There's all the difference in the world between religion and love for Jesus. Religious activity says, I'm good because of what I do. I come to church, have a quiet time, etc. Send notes to people. Love for Jesus says, I'm not good. I'm awful. I've never been good. I could never be good. Except that Jesus Christ has taken away my badness. So I love him. Religion tends to make us look at ourselves and think, well, what can I do to make this better? You know, I'm doing pretty good. How can I kick it up a notch? Love for Jesus is just totally focused on Jesus. Because it's only through him that we can do anything. This is what Peter had to learn. Religious activity is like a checklist. Okay, I'm in my car, listen to 91.9. Check. Got my Jesus fish on the back. Check. Had my quiet time this morning, five minutes. Check. Church attendance this month, not miss a Sunday. Check. I'm good to go. But love for Jesus is nothing to do with the checklist. It's an entire heart orientation. It's an entire orientation of the heart. Religious activity comes from a desire to get better, feel better. Love for Jesus comes from a total gratitude and desire to just worship the man who has done everything for us. Because through Jesus, we're already righteous in God's eyes. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. We're already righteous in God's eyes through Jesus. So let's love Jesus. Let's not be religious. I mean, Peter followed Jesus for years. Peter was there. He was with the right crowd. He said the right things. But when it came down to it, and he got turned up, and there was a little danger that his life could end if he, if he claimed to follow Jesus, he turned his back on him because his heart wasn't really there. This is what Jesus is ratcheting down to. Peter, do you see that this is it? Do you love me? And now you can tend my sheep. If Dolan's Grove blew up tomorrow, and hopefully I'd be out checking the mail or something when it happened. If Dolan's Grove blew up tomorrow and, and all your Christian Facebook groups got shut down, for those of you who know what Facebook is, would you still love Jesus? Or because those avenues are gone, are you just going to be like, uh, kind of like Peter, just go back to fishing? Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy. Morally, I've got it going on. I don't cuss. I don't really even watch R-rated movies. I don't drink. I don't sleep around. 
I'm in pretty good shape. But again, there's a big difference between being a moral person and being in love with Jesus. A huge difference. Moral people think, I'm pretty good. Jesus people think, I'm pretty terrible. But I've got an awesome Savior who loves me, even though I do not deserve it. And he's done everything for me. This is where Peter had to get. He must have felt pretty darn awesome before the trial. He was with Jesus all the time. Even when they came to take Jesus, he grabbed a sword and cut somebody's ears off. Not both ears, one ear. He must have thought pretty highly of himself at this point. I mean, he's seen with Jesus everywhere Jesus goes. Peter's there. He must have felt pretty good. But he had to get to a point where all that was stripped away. To where all that was stripped away, where he saw the true condition of his heart. And he just realized, it doesn't matter that I haven't missed a Sunday in 13 years. It doesn't matter that I have a cross plaque on my wall. None of that matters. All that matters is what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. Some of you might be thinking, well, I love Jesus, but it's a private thing for me. It's in my heart. Don't need to be vocal about it. And you know, there's some validity to that. There are different dispositions. Yeah, I definitely don't want us all to go out here and try to be like the old Peter and just try to be real bombastic about it and not really mean it. But this is a good point because you can, you can trace back to your heart by what you speak. The Bible says that out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, I know people who are, who are pretty quiet-spirited. I know one guy in particular who loves philosophy. He loves philosophy. And since he loves philosophy, he spends his time and money taking a, a weekly class on it. And you talk to him, and it doesn't take long for it to come up in conversation. And once it comes up in conversation, you can tell he's just been thinking about this, and thinking about this, and thinking about this. He loves it. And you can tell because that's just what comes out, because that's what he thinks about, he dwells on. I know men who love golf. You talk to him, it doesn't take long before it comes up in conversation. And once it does, it just pours out, because that's what they've been thinking about, and dwelling on, and thinking about. So, I'm just asking this morning, what... What just comes up and pours out in conversation most naturally? Most likely, that's where your love is. Now, again, I don't want you to go out and start just trying to talk about Jesus a lot. I just want you to trace your speech back to your heart and try to see what's in there. The question on the table is, do we love Jesus? Some of you might be thinking, well, you look to your side and you see... Mr. Such-and-such over there, and you're thinking, I love him at least as much as this guy. I mean, look at this guy. Look at his life. Or you're looking down the aisle this way, you're like, I I love him at least as much as Mrs. Such-and-such over here. Because, I mean, look at her. Look at her attitude. A guy named A.W. Tozer tells a good illustration that might be helpful for us at this point. Imagine that you get a new job. You know, the economy's bad, and you've got to find a new job, and you get one, and you're a piano tuner. I don't know anything about pianos, so this illustration may end up making no sense if you know something about pianos, but just hang with me. We'll get something out of it. But you get a job as a piano tuner, part-time job. You don't know anything about what you're doing. You know you're supposed to just tune these things. So you go in there, and they've, they've been looking for a piano tuner for some time. So they're backed up. They've got 400 pianos that need tuning so that he can sell them. There's people that want to buy these pianos. Even though times are tough, people want a piano, I guess. 
And so you go into the warehouse and you see these 400 pianos, and your job is to tune them all. And so you just get to work. I don't even know like, where you would go to the piano to do this, so I'm not going to try to act it out. But so you get to work, and you just start trying to tune these things. And you, you turn the piano beside you and kind of hit the key to see how that sounds, and you try to tune it to that. And then you go to this piano, and you hit the key to the next one, try to tune it to that. And you think, if I could just get these, these 400 pianos to tune alike and to sound like each other, then surely they'll be right. And your new boss comes in and he sees what you're doing. And he's like, what are you doing? You're never going to get them right like this. You can't tune pianos according to other pianos. You're never going to get anywhere. So he pulls out a tuning fork. He's like, use this. And hopefully I'm not mistaken in thinking that the tuning fork is what you would tune the piano to. And you would know that you're setting it to the right standard. And then tuning all these 400 pianos to the tuning fork, they all do end up being the same. They converge on the same point. And they're all perfected. We can't tune our lives by looking at the person down the road from us. Because they're out of tune just like we are. Please don't tune your life by looking at me. I'm not the tuning for it. We're going to be so confused. We tune our lives because we have the perfect tuning for it. We have Christ. And as we focus on Him through love, as opposed to focusing on ourselves and each other through religion, we will we'll all converge. And we'll be united as we grow to be more like Him and grow to be more in love with Him. And it's beautiful. I see that happening in our church already, and it's awesome. And rather than trying to be people who act at least as good as the person next to them, we'll be people who know that we're no good. We know our hearts, but we know that Christ is everything. And so we'll all be looking to Him. You might be thinking, well, I can't just make myself love somebody. I'm supposed to love Jesus. I can't just make myself love Jesus. Well, it's true. You can't just make yourself love somebody. But I assure you, if you get to know him, you're going to fall in love with him. It's kind of like if you don't know Jesus, it's kind of like a blind date where I'm saying, just give it a chance. I promise you, if you meet this guy and you get to know him, you're going to love him. Or if you do know Jesus and your heart's kind of wandering away from him. It's just like in a marriage. If you start to drift apart, what do you need to do? You need to spend time together. You go on vacation together or something. You spend time together. If you'll spend time with Jesus, I know, I promise, you will fall in love with him. And all the stuff, the burdensome stuff of doing Christianity, of doing religion, That'll just sort of just fall to the floor. And the freedom of love will seep in. Religion is burdensome. Love is freedom. So we need to get to know Jesus. Once you imagine a bunch of sheep. Somewhere out in, in a big pasture and there's woods around. A bunch of sheep. A hundred sheep to be specific. And they have one shepherd. And the shepherd does a good job. He's watching over them. Whenever a bear or a lion comes by, he smacks him with a staff. Which I can't imagine going up against a bear with just a staff. But that's what I envision when I think about shepherds back in Jesus' time. He protects his sheep. He leads them to where they can get food. He takes good care of them. And he counts them to make sure they're all there all the time. And one night, his count comes up short. There's one lamb gone. Out of his hundred, there's 99. And he's like, ah. Oh. One lamb is gone. He recounts, yep, there's one lamb gone. My 99 are here, 
There's one land that's not here. I would stick with the 99. I would stay put. You know, one land, I hate it for him, but he shouldn't have wandered away. You know, it's pretty stupid. All the other lambs are here. Here's where the grass is. Here's where I am. I'm the one with the skills to, to beat off lions with a stick. And he wandered away. I'm just going to have to let him go. But this shepherd, on this night, leaves the 99, and he looks, and he looks, and he looks for a lamb. And I don't think there's much logic to how you can track a lamb because they just aren't terribly smart. They just kind of go in the direction they're going. So he surely has to look for a long time. And he's worried about the other 99, but he's got to find this one lost lamb. And he finds it. He finds a lost lamb. Just before it's going to walk off a cliff and die, he snatches it up. Grabs it by the wool of the neck. Holds it closed. Takes him back to the other 99. I would have let the lamb go. But I'm so, so thankful that Jesus is the kind of shepherd that goes for the one. Because I'm the stupid lamb. I'm the one. And he came for me. You're the one. And he came for you. This is the kind of savior we have in Jesus. He's a savior to love, not a savior to check off checklist kind of stuff about. Picture a group of guys, you know, it's financially, it's hard times right now, so this shouldn't be too hard to picture. Picture a group of day laborers. You know, guys who just kind of go and congregate at a spot in the city where it's well known that day laborers go. And they, they get there and they just wait. You know, they play cards with each other or whatever to pass the time, waiting, hoping that someone will come by and have some work for them to do that day. You know, maybe a farmer can come by and he's got a crop to harvest that day and he needs three men. So picture this group of men. One of the men is just a scrawny little guy. He doesn't look like physically he can really accomplish a whole lot of hard labor. He looks like he should, he'd be better off being like a pastor or something. But he's there with all these other guys who look like they've worked hard their whole lives. So 9 o'clock comes. They all get there early. 9 o'clock comes... Truck pulls up. I've got a job. I need three guys. Takes three. Goes on. Little guy's still left there with some of the others. Twelve o'clock comes. Another truck pulls up. I've got a job. I need done. I need four guys. You, 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 and you. Takes four. Leaves behind a couple, including the little scrawny guy. Two o'clock comes. Another truck pulls up. I've got a job. I need done. I need three guys. You, you, and definitely not you, you. Takes the last three guys. Scrawny guy's just sitting there by himself. And he just knows. Again, he's going to have to go home to his wife and his kids. And she's going to be like, did you get get any work today? And he's going to have to be like, no, I I didn't. I waited all day. He just knows it's coming. He's dreading it. No money tonight. So he sits there. Three o'clock passes. It's four o'clock. Sun's getting low. Everybody quits at five. And a truck pulls up. Window goes down. He's like, man, I know it's four, only an hour left, but I've got a job that can't wait till tomorrow. Can you help me? And the guy's like, of course, yes. I've been waiting here all day. So he goes and he helps. And when he gets home, his wife's like, did you get any work today? And he tries to fake her out like it's the same thing as always. But he's like, ah, yes, I did. And he tells her the story. I was there all day. Everybody else was gone. They took everybody else but me. Because I'm just the scrawny guy. But then this dude shows up at 4 o'clock. 
And he has work. And he takes me and I work probably for 45 minutes. And he paid me a full day's wages. A full day's wages. And my S is on the wrong words there. And they're so excited. And they can't believe it. And she's like, who is this guy? Who did this for you? Who is it? It's Jesus. He came along. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't work for that. But he gave it to us. That's who we worship. That's our Christ. He's a Jesus to love. Not a Jesus to checklist things off about. Imagine one more little scenario. It's a Roman crucifixion. And there's three crosses. The center one is a very familiar one to us. Jesus, our Savior, is on that cross, dying. And next to him, there's a thief. A thief that deserved to die the death on the cross. And he's heard them taunting Jesus. And he's seen Jesus' behavior during all this. And he looks over. And with whatever strength he could muster to be able to talk during a crucifixion, he says, I don't even know if he knew his name. He had King of Jews on his, on his sign there. So maybe he just said, King of the Jews, when you get to heaven, can you just put in a good word for me? He's a thief. You know, they didn't crucify you unless you had done terrible things. And he was on there deservedly. And he's talking to Jesus, the Savior, the sinless one. What has he done to deserve Jesus to put in a good word for him with the Father? Nothing. But he says, could you put in a good word for me? And Jesus says, you bet. You'll be with me in paradise. I'm glad you asked. That's our Jesus. And one day we might meet this guy up there on the, on the streets of gold. He's walking on the stuff he used to steal. And we're like, hey, man, what did you do for Jesus while you were alive? You know, I went to church a lot. I went on mission trips. I gave out gospel tracts, put them on tables at Chick-fil-A. What did you do? And the guy's like, man, I didn't do anything. I was only alive for a couple more hours after I saw Jesus. I don't deserve any of this. I'm not here because of what I did. I'm here because of who I know. And so are we. We know Jesus. He's, Jesus is a person to love. <coughs> If you get to know him, I promise you, you'll fall in love with him. We were prisoners and he set us free. We were starving and he gave us bread. We were sick and he gave us help. We were suffering and he gave us comfort. We were lost and he brought us guidance. We were blind. He brought us a vision. All things that we could not have accomplished on our own or deserved. That is our Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, I'll read this verse to you. It comes from chapter 5, verse 14. Second Corinthians 5, 14. This is Paul talking. Paul says, For Christ's love compels us. That word's like controls us, constrains us, compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all. Christ's love compels us, controls us, constrains us. Jesus' love for Paul is what controlled him, constrained him. Remember who Paul was? Before Christ, Paul was one of the most vicious persecutors of Christians. He killed them. He mocked them. But Jesus saved him. 
I mean, if you come from that background and you've just been a hater of Jesus, and yet he died for you, you respond in love. You don't respond by being like, well, Jesus, I'm glad you saved me because, you know, quite frankly, I earned it. Why do you think God always uses people like this? Peter, a boastful idiot, basically. It sounds kind of harsh to say in the pulpit, but you read about him and he's always doing stupid stuff. A boastful idiot. God builds his church on him. Paul, a hater of Christians, murderer. <coughs> he's written more books in the New Testament than anybody. Moses, murderer, and a coward. He took off running with a speech impediment. He says, I'm slow to speech. I can't talk. God used him to free his people from Egypt. David is a little shepherd boy. Isaiah says that he was a man with unclean lips. He didn't even feel like he could even talk to God or about God because he's just filthy. The disciples are just ordinary working people. These are the ones God uses because these are the ones that aren't standing over here claiming, I've got it all together. These are the ones who respond in gratitude and love. The ones who know that they don't deserve it. That's what he's trying to teach Peter on that beach. Now you see. You don't deserve this. But I love you. Well, you love me. So we need to check our hearts this morning. Do we love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? I don't want us to get into the trap of doing Christianity. I want us to love Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, how do I know? Well, look at your words. Look at your actions. Trace them back to your heart. See what's coming out of your heart. And I I hope you don't think that I'm preaching this judgmentally because this was a punch to the gut for me. Especially about little words. Yeah, look at Peter. He denied Christ three times. When I'm around my unbelieving family, I deny Christ a billion times with my silence. There are so many times that in my head I'm thinking, oh God, you are glorious. Look at what a beautiful day this is. But out of my mouth comes, nice day, huh? They ask how I'm doing. In my mind I'm thinking, it's a really tough situation. But by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ my Savior... I'm doing all right. But out of my mouth, I say, doing fine. I don't want you to think I'm preaching this judgmentally because this just slaps me all around when I study it. I'm Peter in so many ways. And you might be thinking, well, how do I get to know this Jesus you're talking about? How do I get to know him? He's revealed here. He revealed himself in a book. A people, a lot of people don't like to read. They find it hard. I'm sorry. But God chose to reveal himself in a book. And I want to help. And I want our church to be a helping church in this regard. And in one attempt to help, I put out, if you go out of these two doors and you take a left, there's this rack of like pamphlets and things. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of those pamphlets look like they've been there since 1708. First off the printing press. But on the top rack, there's new stuff. And on there, there's a little half sheet of paper that's recommended resources to help you get into the Word a little bit. There's just a couple of things on there, just some things off the top of my head that have been really helpful for me to figure out how to read the Bible. I'll 
Feel free to grab one of those on your way out. Right next to that half sheet of paper are those 91.9 Bible reading schedules. That might help you. But don't do it religiously. Do it to get to know Jesus. If Meredith wrote me a love note, I wouldn't read it thinking, okay, I'm going to read this two times a day and it's going to make me a good husband. No, I'll read it because I love her and I want to get into her mind and get to know her. That's why we come to the Word. Yeah, here's where I need to start cutting stuff out. (laughs) Oh, there's so much I want to say all the time, but there's only so much people want to hear. (laughs) Skip that. Start back here. The big point here, the reason I'm preaching this, A, it flows right out of Easter. It's right after the Easter story in the Gospels. So it fits. B, I really want us to do Penny Crusade. I want us to do it well this year. Penny Crusade is all about serving our missionaries. But I felt like before we did it, and before we did it, if we're really going to do it, we need to do it out of love for Christ. Not out of, you know, hokey schemes to get people to give. Let's do it out of love for Christ. Because Dylan's Grove has to be about our individual and our congregational love for Jesus. Not about just doing stuff. This is what the gospel produces. The gospel produces people who love Jesus, not people who do stuff. And that's why it transcends nations, languages, generations, dress codes. I mean, some of the godless churches I know right now look nothing like this church. And that's scary, but they love Jesus. Some of the churches in Africa don't look anything like this church, but they love Jesus. And that's good. It transcends worship styles, transcends all churchly practices. In Revelation, Jesus is talking to the churches. And there's one in particular. He's kind of chastising them. He says, you've got to change because you have left your first love. Not because you've left your first worship style. You've left your first Bible reading plan. You've left, you left your first dress code. You're not wearing the suit anymore. No, you've left your first love. Your first love. I want to read you a quote. This is going to wrap it on up here. This quote comes from a guy named Matthew Paris. He writes for the Times, and he's an atheist. He's a well-known atheist. He proclaims it. He stands by that. I am an atheist. He wrote an article. The title of the article is, As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. And I want to read a quick quote. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now, as a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. From the lips of an atheist. He sees it because you can't miss it. And that's what I want from us. I want Charlotte to see transformed people with hearts for Jesus. 
They've seen religious people. They've seen that. But they can see transformed hearts. And this is so good that there's a copy of this on the, on the rack out there too. Uh, and there's plenty of them. So grab the whole article. Just gives you chill bumps because an atheist is writing this. And he sees it. That's what Charlotte needs. That's what the world needs. And whenever we ramp up Penny Crusade, we're working out the details. Including looking for someone to uh, be at the helm if anybody wants to volunteer. Contact me later. But when we start this, and as we ramp up toward it, our focus is going to start to get out of Dulles Grove. Out into our neighborhoods. Out into our city. Out into the nation. Out into global. And the prayer is that they will see Jesus and fall in love with Jesus by seeing people who have fallen in love with Jesus and have changed hearts. This comes first, just like for Peter. Peter was to feed Jesus' lambs, but not until he got this straight. Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? Now we're going to sing to him. We're going to sing a song about asking him to open our eyes. The song is basically begging God, open our eyes. And that's what we need, I think. And the altar's open if you want to pray. No one's going to bother you. Do you love Jesus? That is the question.